It's good to be back this morning before you to preach the word. And uh, we're back in the second Samuel. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Second Samuel. And we're going to look at uh, chapter 13. We're going to start there. Uh, released in 2008, Viva La Vida, which translated Long Live Life, was recorded by Coldplay, written about a song written about King Louis XVI. And the song is written from his point of view. It says, uh, this is from the song, I used to rule the world, seas would rise when I gave the word, now in the morning I sleep alone and I sweep the streets that I used to own. I used to roll the dice, feel the fear in my enemy's eyes, listen as the crowd would sing, now the old king is dead, long live the king. One minute I held the key, next the walls closed in on me, and I discovered that my castles stand on pillars of salt, pillars of sand. It was the wicked in the wild, wild wind blew down the doors to let me in, shattered window, windows and the sound of drums, people couldn't believe what I'd become and revolutionaries wait for my head on a silver plate. Just a puppet on a lonely string, oh, who would ever want to be king? This is a song essentially about the French Revolution. When King Louis and his monarchy was finally overthrown and the king was imprisoned by his own people. What happens next was the quick trial that decided his fate. He was publicly executed by guillotine. On the gallows, as the former king shuffled his way to meet death, he stopped to give one final speech to his people. However, when he began to speak, the ever-passionate French crowd began to scream and to boo. And they played the executioner's drums louder and louder, to to muzzle out him. The French masses cared not what their former ruler had to say, and they queued for the executioner. And so before King Louis could finish his speech, the captors forced him down into the the guillotine, and, and he was executed. So we don't know what he said. People have guessed over the years. King Louis XVI succeeded the throne after his grandfather had passed, following the death of the beloved king, Louis the uh, Fourteenth, and then Fifteenth, held much potential. When he was come to the throne, he held much potential in the eyes of the French people. Many celebrated the rise of his kingship, <clears throat> and they saw much potential in this new king. And, and what we find out is they were very disappointed. Louis recognized that revolution was now in full swing and that no amount of reform could help him now. Although King Louis accepted his kingship with eagerness, he looked back now at his powers as a burden that he couldn't fulfill. In the song, and it's much better to listen to it than hear me read it, he admits that the power he thought he wanted was not the same when he actually held it. And Coldplay depicts the king's final speech as not a plea for help or a cry of damnation, but but an admittance of regret. And this regret humanizes him as a king. Showing understanding that he had ultimately failed his people and he failed the throne. You know that phrase at the end I said, who would ever want to be king, right? You can almost see it if you read the stories of King Louis. Regret and failed opportunities not only plagued King Louis, they plague many leaders as well. The world's history is filled with failed leaders, failed kingdoms, failed democracies, 
from Mussolini to Stalin to Hitler, we've seen failed leaders who desire to rule over others more than the desire to serve others that they were to lead. We see it in history, we see it in the Bible. When we come to 1 Samuel, the first book, we come to uh, the leader, essentially Eli. You remember him? Years ago we talked about Eli. Remember Eli? The leader, he was leading God's people. But we find out he couldn't even lead his own two sons. And they were wicked. They abused God's people. And so God raises up Samuel, a young boy who's dropped off to be raised by Eli. And he would be the priest and prophet. But, but God's people were tired of priests. They were tired of listening to them. And they looked out to the world, and what did they see? They saw kings. We want a king, they said. Even in that chapter in 1 Samuel, Samuel is distraught over this. And, and the Lord says to him, this is not you they're rejecting. It's me they're rejecting. So God gives them what they want. He gives them a king. His name was Saul. And if you read the, the, the description of Saul, he was tall. He was kingly. He was the guy you would go select, right? You were going to look for a guy who looks like a king. You pick Saul. He was a king. But Saul, we find out, was full of himself, disobeys God. And when he's confronted by Samuel, instead of admitting his sin and seeking forgiveness, no, he makes excuses. It was the people. They did this. They expected it. I needed to, I needed to satisfy the people. And he shifts blame off of himself to others. And so God is done with Saul. And God then comes to David, the sheep herder, the youngest of eight boys of Jesse. And God is going to make him his king. And, and Saul doesn't go away quietly, right? We read the rest of the book as this, this running of David as Saul is chasing him. We come to the end of 1 Samuel and Saul ultimately dies in battle and we turn the pages of Israel's history and David now becomes king. And all is going well. Things are thriving. King David is the answer, right? He, it looks as if he is the one everyone's looking for. He's the king they needed, but then he falls horribly. He sins greatly and God brings judgment upon him. See, God would use David and his sin is a display of his own holiness and righteousness. God would use David to teach his people that they could never, ever be holy on their own. They needed someone who was perfect to be their king, someone who was perfect to lead them. And, and, and what we find out the rest of 2 Samuel is just this failure of King David. But for the rest of our time, I want to answer this question. What kind of leader does Israel need? They wanted a king, but did they want what David was doing? Perhaps they should look who's next in line, right? Because if David dies, it's, it's the next one. And, and do you know who was next in line? Amnon. Maybe he would be the king that they wanted. Well, Amnon, we'll quickly find out, dies. And who's next in line? Absalom. Maybe Absalom will be the king that we need. We will find out as we walk through this passage, and it's a long one, I'm going to warn you, okay? What kind of leader do they need? And then we turn to ourselves, what kind of leader do you want? An outwardly impressive leader. Someone who can really talk. Or do you want a, a leader who has character? 
Do you want a go-getter, an ambitious, strong, someone that's going to just take down the man? Or do you want someone who's holy and righteous and desires to serve others? Well, here's the main idea. We won't find the leader we need until we submit our lives to the eternal king. Okay? We won't find the leader we need until we submit our lives to our king. Leaders will come and go, but who can, ultimately, who can we ultimately trust with our lives? God would show his people and us that the real king we need was not created by man, but an eternal God. And so this morning we're going to endeavor to cover a large section of 2 Samuel from the end of chapter 13 all the way through chapter 19. So you need to have Bibles open and buckled up, okay? There's four points in the outline here, okay? Again, I'm really creative when it comes to outlines. Is Amnon the king they need? Is Absalom the king they need? Is David the king they need? Jesus is the king they need, okay? So we're going to go through this, and then number four is the main, you just need to come away with that, all right? But that's the outline. I give an outline, we give you an outline because, I don't know about you, but I like to know where we're going and how I can gauge when we're going to be done. That's why we put the order of service in there, because sometimes parents, you need to say to your kids, listen, be quiet, because lunch is coming. We're almost there. So here's the outline, all right? It helps you as adults. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seats. It's on page 247. You will be helped this morning to have a Bible open, okay? You will be helped to have it open because we're going to jump around to a number of passages. I will not read every verse. If so, we would be here just reading the Bible, okay? We're going to jump around. First question, is Amnon the king they need? In our special evening service last Sunday, we looked at the first half of chapter 13 and the sexual abuse of of Tamar by her half-brother Amnon, and and we're not going to cover that again. The Bible is painfully real about the sin of people and the brokenness of humans. I do want to state that we have a number of resources. People have asked um, from that. We'll have the service online this week if you missed it and you want to listen to it. We do have a number of resources here. We want to help people that have suffered through sexual abuse. We have some in the bookstall. We also just have people that that have been trained in biblical counseling. They're not professional, but they love the Lord and they love the Bible and they'd be willing to meet. So if you have any desire, please contact us, okay? As I said, the Bible is painfully real about the sin of people and the brokenness of humans. And so we won't go through this passage in detail, but I wanted to back up in 2 Samuel to chapter 3 just briefly. Again, you're going to get good use of your Bible this morning. Chapter 3, verse 2. This is something I want to call to your mind because I think it's important. Verse 2 is just this lineage, just this explanation of who was born to David. It says, And the sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahiam of Jezreel, and his second is Kiliab. Now, we don't know anything about Kiliab. He's not mentioned anymore, so he's presumed dead at this point. And he was born to Abigail. And then the third, Absalom, the son of Maka, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. Okay? So there's the list of those that would follow King David. Come back to chapter 13. Amnon was to be king. David were to die, Amnon was the next one. But if you read the first 22 verses of chapter 13, you realize Amnon is wicked. He's evil. He desired his half-sister, and ultimately he takes her and abuses her. And, And as far as the law stipulated, this didn't disqualify him to be king. Now, there was restitution and marriage that were to come because of it, but no death penalty. Just the same here in our country. There is no death penalty for this, but there is jail time that happens for those who sexually abuse others. 
But what we find out in this chapter is Amnon was guilty. There's no doubt about it. He wickedly took what he wanted, and he didn't care who he hurt in the process. Is that the type of king they need? Right? I mean, think about that. Is that the one where you're like, yeah, I want that guy? No one would answer that. Would a king who would do anything to get what he wanted, would he be the right leader for God's people? That he would take and abuse those for his own pleasure. That's not the king that would be good for God's people. And we find out pretty quickly that what others thought of Amnon's future leadership. See, the second half of chapter 13 is the spark that ignites the rest of David's reign as king. So look at verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but he gave him his blessing. And Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Verse 28. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. In other words, when he's drunk. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you. Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. We can understand the anger and justice that wells up in Absalom. His own sister was abused, and he wanted justice to be done. And so he took it upon himself to bring justice. And Amnon won't be king because he's dead. He is off the line. But should he have been king? Are you okay with that type of leader? The, the type of Amnon, would you want that leader to be leading you? The type of leader that you would like to have authority over you? Is that the one you would go and select? Yes, please lead me, lead us. Or would you want a different type of leader? See, Amnon shouldn't have been king, but God should have been the one who removed him. But we don't see that. So that's the first one, the first point. It's really quick. Number two is a little longer. Is Absalom the king that they need? So Amnon's gone. Absalom's the next in line. I find it very interesting that Absalom was the next in line. I'm sure he knew that he was the next one in line. And as we begin to see and unfold and what I'll share with you, I I think it was on purpose. Very much vengeance-minded, but he knew what he was doing. If I can remove that guy, I slide up into that position. He looked more prepared to lead on the outside. He at least looked the part. The first thing we see about Absalom is he was kingly in his appearance. So jump into chapter 14, verse 25. I told you we would jump around. So verse 25, chapter 14, verse 25. Now all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. Why does the narrator include these details in the story? 
Do you ever do that when you're reading the Bible? You should ask that question. It's a good question to ask. We have to ask these questions when we read the Bible. But they're there for a reason. We don't maybe understand clearly right away, but there's a reason. And we'll get to that. For Absalom here, I believe it's narrator's way of saying is, hey, look, the people are still swayed by good looks. The people are still, they still want a king who looks like a king. And Absalom, hey, friends, he was a good-looking dude. And he looked the part, right? It's a, a flashback to, to what we see in Saul. And Absalom had this preoccupation with his magnificent hair. And it verges on narcissism a little bit. He was really a celebrity among God's people. And the narrator is, is doing this on purpose. He's drawing us in to understand who Absalom is. And he is making this connection back to Saul. And I think that's important because you don't really want to be connected to Saul. You read that first section and you're like, I want to stay away. But he's connecting these two. Absalom and Saul are alike. So he's good looking. He's kingly. Second, Absalom was ambitious. Turn over to chapter 15, verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king of judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Politicians haven't changed much since then, huh? And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did all to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. We learn from these verses that apparent righteousness can only up being apparent. Absalom is not righteous in his actions here, but he sure looks that way, doesn't he? You know, verse 3, see, your claims are good and right. There's, there's no man designated to the king to hear you, but I'm here. He's displaying himself to the people that I am the righteous judge. I am the right arbiter for the people. I'm the man. Verse 4, Oh, that I were judge in the land, that every man would dispute, come come to me. And I, finally I, I will give him justice. It looks as if he's wanting to serve the people. But ultimately, as we find out, he's just wanting to serve who? Yeah, you guys are good, good Bible readers. He's going to serve himself. Like a good politician, he's shaking hands and kissing babies, right? He's going to just drum up the support that he needs. And the people, they eat it up. They love him. And the narrator says he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He's saying what they wanted to hear. And oh, oh, Absalom, he is so amazing. I mean, just look at him. He is, he is a king. And he's going to be our ju- he's going to get justice for us finally. He's going to do all the things that that other king couldn't do. He's the man. I'm pro Absalom. I'm going to put that, that sign in my yard. He's the guy. It was all for him. Let's look even farther. Verse 7, chapter 15. Again, this is his ambition. 
Chapter 15, verse 7, at the end of the four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I live in Geshur and Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. And Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilead, David's counselor from the city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Ambition, ambition was what we see here with Absalom. He was very ambitious to serve. He was very ambitious to be the king, but it wasn't for the people, it was for him. He was ambitious for himself. He wanted to serve, not for them, but for him. What motivates you in your service for others? What motivates you in your service for the church? Do you serve so that your service will be seen by others? Do you serve here so that you can pad your church resume, writing down all the ways that you are indispensable to this church? Do you serve so that people will like you or accept you or that people will be friends with you? Ultimately, I'm asking, are you serving for yourself or because of genuine love for the Lord? If it's the former, then you will never be thanked enough. And if it's the latter, you can keep doing it and you won't worry about the constant recognition. Time eventually displays what's in our heart and what drives us. And for Absalom, selfish, ambitious pride was brimming to the top. So he was good looking, he was ambitious. Third, he was prideful. Come back to chapter 13. We've already read it, but I want you to see it again. 2 Samuel 13, 26, and Absalom, he's going to the king again. He's going to have this party. He says, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. Remember, the king said, no, I'm not going to come. The king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and the king's sons go with him. And then he commands his servants to strike Amnon and kill him. And don't have fear, for I have commanded you, be strong, excuse me, be courageous and be valiant. Absalom wouldn't wait for God to bring justice. He was going to get his revenge on his own. I mean, he does wait two whole years, and then he plans this sheep-shearing party. I wonder if those are fun. Come, join the sheep-shearing party. We're going to make a sweater. But he doesn't do it for others. He does it for himself. And then... He doesn't have the gall to do it himself. He commands his servants to do his dirty work. He puts it on them to kill Amnon. And Absalom's pride pushes him to get revenge. I'm just wondering, do you have situations or people in your life, people that, you've, that have hurt you deeply, and your mind is scheming on ways to get revenge? Have you been hurt? Perhaps you've been seriously abused and now you're thinking, I need to get back. And it's serious. There's an injustice. Friends, we need to be careful of 
mistaking our own prideful desire for revenge as justice that needs to come. What justice is centered on is God and his will. Justice is never centered on you and your desires. If you're struggling to know what to do when someone has wronged you, I'm going to encourage you to pray about it. To go to the Lord, to seek out some godly people that you know, and to to tell them, I am struggling here. To even expose your heart, I want revenge. And to seek counsel and to read the Bible, to see what the Bible says about revenge in relation to our heart. Often, we know too little of the situation, what's happened. And often, we need to keep it in the hands of God instead of our own. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Friends, it is better to leave it in his hands because he knows everything. And God is a God of justice. And he will bring justice. And it may not be on your timetable, but justice will come. See, pride was at the root of Absalom's desire to be king. And pride drove him to go and get this kingship. Look at chapter 14, verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go, set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered, Joab, behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be still, still be there. Thou, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed down himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Friends, Pride is an established and accomplished actor who assumes many roles temporarily in our lives. But pride will be unmasked in the end. Pride drives Absalom. It fueled his rebellion and it fueled his ascent to the throne. And friends, we should not be misled by our own pride. Selfish, ambitious pride. Pride would mislead Absalom. Turn over to chapter 17. At the beginning of the chapter, Ahithophel is there to give counsel. He was David's counselor, and now he's with Absalom. And as you read earlier before that, you see that, that David finds Hushai, his counselor, and he sends him to Absalom. Secret agent kind of stuff. You're going to want to read this if you haven't already. Sends him, and then he says, essentially, give him bad advice. So Ahithophel 
gives advice on what he's going to do because he's going to seize the throne. He's going to take out David. And Ahithophel's advice seems right. But now Hushai comes, okay? The trusted advisor. He's defected, but he's really with David. And he comes there. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Or sorry, verse 7. Then Hushai said to Absalom, because Absalom asked for Hushai, he says, this time, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they're enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, it's okay. We will pray for you, parents. I would take a poll of how many people have suffered that, but we would all the hands would raise. Love the parents, okay? Pray for them. Where was I? Verse 9. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But Verse 11, here's the key. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sea of the sand for multitude and that you go to battle in person. See, all it took for Hushai was to stroke Absalom's pride. Hushai gives him advice that would destroy him. He contradicts the advice of Hithophel, which would have worked. So why does Absalom listen to him? Why couldn't he see that it was bad advice? Because Hushai flatters him. And the flattery is in verse 11. See, my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you. All of Israel will come to you, king. And they will want to hear from you. They will want to be led by you. You will be their king. You hear it? From Dan to Beersheba, as the sand of the sea, the multitude, they will come and they will bow down to you because you will be their king. Hushai flatters him. Bring all the people here so that they can see your power and your might. And this, this flattery and adulation. And what does Absalom do? Boy, he melts. Like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I want to be the guy. This sounds good. But ignore the fact that he was letting David's army get away. Ignore the fact that his best advisor told him something totally different. Ignore the fact that this would now give David and his men time to regroup. Ignore the fact that David was a mighty warrior and could muster his men together for any battle. It didn't matter for Absalom this moment. Absalom was flattered, and he began to think of all that would happen when all the people gathered to see him as king. He thought pretty highly of himself at that point. And eventually, what is suggested crushes him. And all it took was the stroking of his pride. Has your pride ever betrayed you, friend? See, pride usually presents itself as your best friend. But pride only means to bring you harm. 
When you look back over your life, can you see where pride led you down a path that was painful and hard? And now you see it clearly? See, time does that. We need to put to death our pride. We need to be Christians who are developing our humility. How are you at developing humility? Are you actually working towards that? Do you recognize that that essentially you won't be able to do it well enough by yourself that you will need others to help you develop your humility? Have you actually invited others into your life, whether that's your spouse or a close friend, to say and, and to observe, am I being prideful? And then when they answer, yes, you don't take off their head, but you listen. See, that's how you cultivate humility. And Absalom, he had no one in his life like this. He did not seek it. Hushai is brilliant. He recognizes Absalom and he goes to that point and he pushes on it because he knows how Absalom will respond. And Absalom, oh man, he loved that advice. That puffed up his bride. Well, the last thing I want you to notice about Absalom is that he fails to honor his father. Chapter 15, verse 4. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. We, we looked at this. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Then Absalom did, all, did to all of Israel who came to to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Who was the king at this time? David. So when the people came to him, what should he have done? Who should he have sent him to? David. But Absalom didn't want that. He was convinced he could do better. And he works to steal the hearts of the people. Ultimately, what we see here, friends, is he's dishonoring his father. He's dishonoring the authority that God placed in his life. When the Bible says, honor your father and mother, you need to understand that there's no expiration date. It wasn't written just for little kids. It was written for little kids. So for those that are sleeping right now, wake up. It was written for you, but there's no expiration date. And honor doesn't mean that you agree with everything that they have done. I know that some of you have been seriously hurt and abused by your parents. It means to respect the position of authority. And it doesn't necessarily mean to respect them and what they have done with that authority. So I'm not excusing that, okay? But it's the authority is what he's talking about. So it's not just honor your father and mother. It goes beyond that. It goes to the authority that's placed in our lives. You know, we live in an interesting time in America where a lot of people think authority is bad. Authority was established by God. It is not evil. People in authority can be evil, but authority is not evil. And so, Jeff, Chris, why do you guys pray for those in authority every, every week during our pastoral prayer? Because we seek to obey what the pastoral epistles list out for us to do. And we recognize that authority is given by God. And that we need to honor that by praying for them. 
And so no matter, just so you understand, I know people have left the church for this. It may shock you. No matter who's in the White House, we will pray for that president. It doesn't mean that we will agree with everything that president does. But we will honor the authority that God has established and we will pray for them. We pray that they would turn and follow Jesus Christ and do things that are well for the people. But we will honor authority. If that offends you, I would love to talk about that with you. I would love to talk through these things because I don't know about you, I struggle with authority. There's definitely moments where I think, man, this person in authority is not doing it right. And I want to talk with them and talk through these things. And it's struggle. There's a, there's a, a rub on it. But ultimately, as Christians, we're to submit under authority. And so we pray for them. And we pray that those in authority would use it well. And that when they don't, that God would deal with them justly. We leave it in God's hands. And we pray to that end. God, deal with those in authority. Take care of those situations of those in authority. Part of the fifth commandment is that we honor established authority. And what does Absalom do here in this passage? He dishonors authority. He sins. Friends, are you actively undermining authority in your life? Kids, I knew I was going to get there, right? Can all the kids here look at me for a moment? I know taking notes or drawing, I understand that. God gave you a mom and dad because he knew what he was doing. They are a gift, especially if they love the Lord and they want to obey him. But God gave you a mom and dad to be an authority over your life. So don't push against that. Recognize that. Honor the authority. And when they're godly, praise God for that. It's not always true. I know some of you have had parents that were not godly. And I know the difficulty to, to work through that. But ultimately, authority is given by God for our good. And we need to understand that. So kids, don't undermine that. Well, we're all kids, essentially. For you old kids, how are you honoring the authority in your life? Even as you're an adult, honoring the authority of mom and dad. Hey, listen, I'm just going to tell you, there is not a mom and dad here who's raised a kid and thinks, man, I did a good job. I'm just perfect. There is not one. If they say that, they're lying. They go through. You know what moms and dads do? And... You know, my kids are still in my home, but I've heard it. I've sat in my office. They go through their life and think, man, I wish I'd have done this differently. So kids, adult kids, recognize that, especially if you, want, if you have parents that recognize that they've done things they shouldn't have done and they want to deal with it. Recognize that God placed them in authority and that God's working in their life now and then honor them. If you don't honor your parents, you're dismissing what God says in his word. And you're sinning like Absalom is. So I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this because I love you and because it's good advice to take to heart and to understand this. Don't fall into the temptation, all of us, that Absalom does here, lying to yourself that dishonoring authority is looked highly upon by God. It's not. 
Absalom lied to himself. And we come to end here, you know, is Absalom now, as we've saw these things, is, is Absalom fit to be king? We saw he has kingly looks. He's a good-looking dude. He's ambitious. That can be good, right? But he's full of pride. And he ultimately hated his father. And he spurned authority in his life. Is that the type of king that people need? Is that the type of leader you want? Is that the type of leader you want in your life? Well, third, is David the king they need? If Amnon and Absalom are not the kings that they need, perhaps it's merciful David. David the shepherd king who waited years to be fully introduced. Perhaps he's the truly, he's the one that they've been looking for. He's the right king. When we come to chapter 15, we come to a David who's in his mid to late 60s. Just so you know, when we back up into chapter 11, David's in his late 50s when the sin with Bathsheba happens. He was an old man. He should have known better. And here we come to 15, he's in his probably 64 to 65, possibly as old as 69, the last year of his life. So he knows his life is about to end. He feels it in his bones. Amen? Anyone make a groan sound when they got out of the bed this morning? You age and you slow down. And sometimes what happens is you mellow out as you get older. And we find out after the mess of chapter 11 and 12 that David is more like the priest Eli than he would like to admit. Some of David's failure might look like virtue because they are failures of inaction. Inaction, passivity, neglect. That's the theme of the second half of David's life. David didn't do anything when Joab murdered Abner, right? David didn't do anything when Amnon raped his daughter. David didn't do anything when Absalom murders Amnon in revenge. David didn't do anything. Inaction, passivity, neglect. That's the theme and the legacy of David's life as he gets to the final years of his time on earth. David didn't do anything. And we see now the deadly effects when a leader resorts to inaction when things happen. When Joab goes to Geshur, Finally, after the king relents to go get Absalom and he brings him back, David does nothing. 14, 20, or chapter 14, 24, the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house and not come in my house. He's here, I'm not going to do anything. Never mind the fact that he knows that Absalom just killed the next in line, Amnon, the apparent heir to the throne. David does nothing. He's going to stew in his, let Absalom stew. Then in chapter 15, when, when Absalom gathers for himself a crowd of followers and devises a plan to overthrow David, what does David do? Look at chapter 15, verse 14. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtakes us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David does nothing. He runs. I, I do need to mention here, and I don't want to camp on this very long, but you need to note that Absalom begins his conquest, and we read as a fulfillment of what the judgment was in chapter 12. So look at chapter 16 just briefly. I want you to notice this because this, again, firms up our understanding that what God says in his word will happen, okay? Chapter 16, verse 21 and 22. 
Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Why is this significant? Come back to chapter 12, verse 11. Remember, David is called out for his sin with Bathsheba, and God's going to bring the consequences for the sin. 2 Samuel 12, verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives, your concubines, before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. God is true to his word. And what God says will happen, will happen. All that he says will happen. We learn after the bad advice is heeded by Hushai and Absalom agrees to it, the battle begins. And David gives some very strange advice. Coming back to David and understanding who he is as a king. Chapter 18, verse 5. The war is about to happen, and he gives us advice. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai. He says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Absalom, he was the one who came and stole the hearts of God's people. He was the one who murdered the next one in line. He was the one who who has now officially said, I am king, by sleeping with the concubines. Remember, again, in history and the culture, that was a a move, a power move to say, I'm the one that should be in, in charge. And what does David say to his men? Deal with him gently. Essentially, David's given up. His inactivity has forced him to throw in the towel. Perhaps because he's an old man. Perhaps he, he just convinced himself, Absalom's the next one. It's just probably better for him to do it. I'm tired. I mean, he, I've lived a long life. I've been through a lot. I'm kind of wore out. This king thing is just exhausting. He really wants it. Man, I mean, he's really ambitious to go get it. So, so deal with him gently. Do you know the difference between a sin of commission and a sin of omission? Sins of omission are those in which we, we knew we should have done something and we refused to do it. A sin of commission is a sin that we take action to commit, whether in thought or word or deed. A sin of commission can be intentional or unintentional. And David is appearing here in his directions to keep Absalom safe, to be merciful and to be kind. Well, that's just David. He's just a merciful guy. But if you look more carefully and read these chapters together, chapters 13 through 20, and you read it as one story, you realize that that that's not what's happening. David is neglecting his duty to show justice. It's a sin of omission. David fails here. He sins. He refuses to act. He knows he must do something and he refuses to do it. And God knows this and God will deal with Absalom. 
Look at verse eight, or chapter 18, verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to be the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I dealt treacherously against his life and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and he thrust them in the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. See, I told you earlier that this description about Absalom's hair would come back. And, and, and some might think that he had just a big head. I mean, he did have a big head and how he thought of himself. But his head is not what got stuck in the branches. What got stuck in the branches? His hair. See, the narrator gives us this information earlier as to say this is important. I'm drawing this to your attention because it, it's going to come back later. You need to note this. And he says now this is hair. His hair that he prided himself on got tangled on the branches and hung him out to dry. The self-appointed king who was famed for his beauty and good looks caught his hair in a tree and was killed. The king, as we read in this section, we didn't cover it this morning, who built a monument for himself in the king's valley receives the death of a traitor. Death and defeat is the final fate for those who choose to rule themselves. Chapter 18, verse 31. Behold, the Cushite came and the Cushite said, Good news from my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Chapter 19, verse 1. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom! Oh, Absalom, my son, my son! Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. 
Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat at the gate, and the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. David had this strange response now to Absalom in light of all that's happening. You, you know what's happened, right? Absalom rose up to go and, and kill the king that God had placed there. David knew. He knew that God had selected him. He knew what God's word said. And his response and all of this is deal gently with Absalom. And then when he dies, he weeps. Perhaps, perhaps David is finally recognizing that Absalom's death is the consequence of his own sin with Bathsheba. We don't know. But we know that excessive sorrow can be a symptom of inordinate love. We need to understand that we can love the right things with the wrong amount. We can love our children and our spouse, but we can love them too much so that God is pushed aside, so that God's word is set aside, so that it's ignored. It was God's word that established David as king. And David needed to obey what God's word said. And that's not what we see here. Absalom is dead, and David weeps. And Joab, who we don't have time to mess with Joab, he's, he, I just can't figure out this guy. He's a mess. He actually says the right thing to David. He calls him to the carpet of what's happened. So Amnon's dead, Absalom's dead, David's still king over Israel. But as we've seen, is David the right king to lead Israel? You know, this whole section that we've looked at, we look at the cries out, really, it's essentially of saying we need a king. We need someone to lead us, to, to bear our fate, to, to lead us faithfully, to to, to protect us. Is there a king like that? Well, here comes the main point, number four. Jesus is the king we need. Friend, I wonder if you're here, you're visiting, or you've been here before, and, and you don't consider yourself a Christian. Do you understand that the nature and practice of sin is that you want to take the reins of your life? The nature and practice of sin is that you want to be in control. The world and your flesh are screaming at you that you are your own captain. That you should be in charge. You should decide how your life goes. I wonder how many of you believe that you are ruler. That maybe you're enough, like King Louis that we read at the beginning briefly. You know, there came a tragic end to King Louis. He thought he was enough, and he found out he wasn't. Friend, have you convinced yourself that you're enough? That you can, you can rule yourself properly? That you really don't need a king? That you got this? 2 Samuel 14, 14 says, We must all die. We are like water spilled in the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. 
But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Every one of us have been banished, exiled for our sins. We had no way in and of ourselves to be brought before the king of the universe without dying. We are exiled from God's presence, exiled from the lives that we really want to live, exiled from the true peace and rest that we need. But he will devise a way that the exiled won't remain or be an outcast forever. We see in this passage, we saw it so briefly, if you read through it, David was exiled as well, right? Absalom rises up, David hears of it, and he runs. He leaves Jerusalem. He's exiled. Look at chapter 15, verse 23. Two verses in this chapter I want you to see. Chapter, we're almost done, friends. Okay, just a few more pages. I know, we've been going a long time. There's a lot of chapters in this. Chapter 15, verse 23. And all the land wept aloud. This is as they're leaving, okay? The people that are leaving with David. All the land leapt, wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the book Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Then jump to verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. These two verses are significant. David's banished from the city. He is exiled. He's running for his life. He's an outcast. And then the Gospels. We read of another one who crossed the brook Kidron. In my Bible, chapter 23, a reference point says to look at John 18.1. John 18.1 says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, this is after the supper with his disciples, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. In Matthew's gospel, we read, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, to the Mount of Olives, with his disciples, and he says, sit here while I go and pray. We know how that ends. What we read in the gospel is that Jesus, too, crossed the brook Kidron, the same brook that David crossed. He too goes up the Mount of Olives, the same Mount of Olives that David did. He goes, Jesus goes as an exile in our place. David weeps for what he lost. Jesus in the garden, he weeps for what it would cost him. David was exiled because of his own sin of inactivity. Jesus would be exiled on the cross for our sins so that we can escape the judgment of God. Friends, David is not the king that we need. Jesus is the king we need. And if you are here and you've never repented of your sins, your sin of ultimately trusting in yourself, you need to humble yourself this morning. I plead for you to humble yourself and to place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. He is the rightful king of your life. He will do everything well. Turn from your sin. 
trust in him. Why? Because God will not abdicate his duty to bring justice. He will do what he says he will do. And he will bring justice to your life as well as you, if you are not trusting in Christ alone. And you will stand before God one day. All of us will. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we will be forgiven and enter in the presence of God. If you stand in and of yourself, you will not. And so I, I implore you, friends, trust in Christ today. To my Christian friends that are here this morning, are you trusting in Christ as your leader right now? Not just for salvation, but for everything in life. Let me ask a question. How often do you lie awake at night? Not because of sickness or because kids won't sleep in your house, but how often do you lay awake at night because of fears or anxiety or anger? You know, we come to the Bible in Psalm 3. Psalm 3 was written by David, and it was written when he's running from Absalom. He's fleeing. And, and Psalm 3 is a psalm written to Christians who can't sleep at night. It briefly talks about what David was experiencing here in the chapters that, were, that we've covered briefly, how people are rising up against him and how it seems that God will not deliver him Perhaps that's because of Shimei. This is another fascinating time of chapter 16 when Shimei curses David. You need to read that. Spitting at him and throwing things. Go ahead and read that this afternoon or on the table. Be good enjoyment. Maybe he's talking about that. We may think that David probably, in the midst of all this, as he's running for his life, that David couldn't sleep well. You know, can you imagine David being full of anger and anxiety and angst for the future? I mean, it makes sense, right? He's been exiled out of Jerusalem. But David says in Psalm 3 that he can sleep just fine. Psalm 3, verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke up again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. And how could David do this? Doesn't David realize what's going on? Is he aloof? No, the answer in verse 3 earlier, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory, and the lifter of my head. He can sleep at night because he knows that the Lord is his shield. He can sleep at night because he knows that the Lord is his king. David left Jerusalem with everything of earthly protection, but in another sense, David has all that he really needs because he has the Lord. Even in the midst of failures, deep, serious failures in his life and frailties, David knew his God. And he ends the psalm, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. You know, friends, David is a lot like us. Where we can make a number of steps forward and think that we're progressing in the Christian life and then, well, we sin. He's a lot like us. We fail and we forget God and we try to live our lives on our own terms, but then God graciously brings us back to himself. Christian, this morning you need you to remember that God is your rightful king. It is him who redeemed you. It is him who keeps you. It's not your good behavior. 
It is not your good Christian life. It's not because you went to church on Sunday. It's because of what God has done for you. And it's God alone who sustains you. He is the one we should trust in. He is the one that, that will give us a good night's rest. So I encourage you to trust in him this week. You've been good listeners, friends. Thank you for enduring. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that word guides us and leads us. God, I thank you for the reminder that I've had this week and hopefully that everyone's had this morning that you are the king that we need. That people will fail us. Leaders will fail us. People will abandon us. People will disappoint us. But God, you will always be true to us. And so we ask that you would help us to trust in you this week. And for your honor and glory, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.